So if you are able to, um, please rise up as we read God's word. Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over the people, passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, its, um, its relevance, not just in history, but also to us as we as we sit in your presence and before your word, we pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance in illuminating the truths of your word and, uh, and to make them real in our lives. So we ask for your grace and your mercy in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May be seated. You know, one of the um, most confounding things about human beings uh, is memory, right? Memory is, is a very funny thing sometimes, right? Like sometimes... Um, you know, so a person like me, uh, I'm very interested in sports. So I can remember, I, I guess for the rest of my life until maybe I get some kind of condition that prevents me remembering it, that, uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors went 73 and 9 
in the 2016 season. Like, I will remember this. But I can meet a person maybe six months prior, and I might have met him five, six times. And then after maybe like uh, two, three months of not meeting that person, if that person comes up to me, most often I forget that person's name. And, and so when I speak to him, I take much care not to bring up his name <laughs> in the conversation. And then I don't remember whether he has children or how many does he have. So I ask, you know, again, very carefully, how is the family? Because it's a very uh, expansive category of, uh, of, of classification. So we, f- we forget important things, but we can remember useless trivia, right? And, 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 and it's interesting, one of the effects of the fall um, is called the noetic effect of sin. What that means is that the fall had a particular impact on the mind, on reasoning, and on memory. And you can see all of those effects of sin in Romans chapter 1. When you read it, you can see the impact of faulty reasoning, the impact of forgetfulness in, on, on people uh, in their relationship with God. So human beings understand that even though we value our memory, our memory is not really the most reliable narrator of events or history. It's a, it's, it's not, you cannot completely trust it. So there are many like books and movies whose central uh, concept or concept is that the memory of the person or the people who are uh, who are narrating it is unreliable. So if you see a movie like Rashomon, which I don't think many of you would have seen, or if you see something like Memento, which is another movie, the whole concept is that this person's memory may not be what he thinks it is, and and so. This idea of memory as being unreliable is also very important in the Bible. Memory, remembering, is a very important thing in the Bible. And, and it is tied not just to intellectual recollection of facts, but remembrance in the Bible is specifically tied to remembering the promises and faithfulness of God. What he has done for us in the past should drive us in the present to be faithful to God and to persevere in the present because of our hope for the future, all because we remember what God has done for us in the past. Conversely, forgetfulness in the Bible is always tied to breaking our faithfulness to God and to going astray. So as many people say, the greatest enemy of faith may be uh, forgetfulness. And if you go read the New Testament, you know, when Paul is under persecution, when he is uh, he, he is, um, you know, in a situation where many people would probably say, I had enough of this. You know, I want to kind of step back and go back to my old life. I don't want to be Christian anymore. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, the reason he endures is that because he remembers Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Here, so that remembrance is, is connected to faithfulness. And in, a, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 15, you know, Peter has this history of forgetfulness most, uh, you know, most uh, explicitly in the incident where he denies Jesus. And then the rooster crows, and then he remembers that Jesus had told him that this is going to happen. And so Peter says, you know, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Sometimes I say to refresh your memory. See, what he's trying to say is that you remember with the purpose of staying faithful in the present and in the future. Now, what's important for us to understand is that to help us with our memory, God places markers or milestones to help us remember and keep us faithful. And this is a part of God's grace and revelation throughout history. He asks, he asks his people to look back and reflect on these memorials as a means to keep them on the straight and narrow, on the, on the right path. So in, in, we know in Joshua chapter 3, the people of Israel crossed the Jordan the river waters were parted by God so that the people could cross over the Jordan and come to, to the very border of Jericho in a place called Gilgal. And, and in Joshua 4, which we read, we see that God instituted a memorial to that event to help his people remember that they crossed the Jordan because of God's help. And he told Joshua, you command them to take 12 stones from the center of the river you know, which you cannot take otherwise. You know, in the past, they didn't have like I guess deep sea diving gear uh, or, or, or vessels which dive. So like you could not take this otherwise unless the Lord had parted the waters into dry ground. And he says, you take it and you set it up as a memorial forever. Verse nine, you set it forever for the people of God to remember and you set it up in Gilgal. So here's this memorial or a milestone to commemorate a spectacular event in Israel's history. And these stones represent God's concern for enduring memory on the behalf of his people. And, and so this passage, you can talk about a lot of things, but I want to focus on what is repeated you know, a couple of times in this passage. What do these stones mean? That should be the title of the sermon. The reason it's not the title of the sermon is because everyone who preaches on chapter 4, that is the title of their sermon. So I wanted to kind of, at least in Google, stand out a little bit uh, with a with different title, even though it has an unfortunate um, resemblance to like kidney stones. But it's like, uh, God said, you take these stones and make them a memorial. And so you can go off on a tangent and talk about so many things that help you remember. Like, we, we, oh, I was born again on this date, or this is when something happened, and so on and so forth. But God, throughout the word, throughout the scripture, he places milestones, he places memorials, he places remembrances for us to follow, to remember, because he has specific purposes in the memorials that he institutes. And those purposes are, what does this memorial or this remembrance tell you about God? And then secondly, what does it tell us about ourselves? And then lastly, Using these remembrances or these memorials, what do we tell others about it? So what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? And what does it tell, well, how does it help us tell others about God? You know, what does this tell us about God? In, in chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, it says, You shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up, for us until we pass over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So when you look at the memorial, first off, you start with the fact that it has 12 stones, right? There's not six, there's not 11. There's a specific 
number that God said. You take 12 stones, one, each one representing each tribe of Israel that crossed over. And, and that 12 stones represents the faithfulness of God to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember in, in Genesis chapter 12, he promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And he reaffirmed that promise to Isaac and Jacob. So when they were in slavery in Egypt, when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, it's easy to, it was easy for them to think that God had abandoned them. But then he raised up Moses and he rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh with great signs of wonders, specifically the crossing of the Red Sea, which is mentioned here. And so God is saying, I I did it in the past. I I parted the Red Sea. I was faithful in the past. And I I was faithful once again. I parted the Jordan. His promises never fail. They can be counted on. He can be counted on. He is a faithful God. Twelve stones, specific in number, to point to the faithfulness of God in remembering, uh, in keeping his promises to the people of Israel. And then you see, the 12 stones had to be from the Jordan, from the very center of the riverbed itself. They were not from the shore, or they were not from, you know, from, from, uh, from shallow waters. They had to be from the center. And why is that important? In, in chapter 3 of Joshua, in verse 15, which we read last week, it says, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of water. And then the writer puts an explanation. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. So there are seasons in which the Jordan is like a pretty placid kind of lake or river. Right? It might be conceivable that you could do something like cross the river. Even if it was not that, uh, that easy. But in this season, the, the Jordan overflows all its banks, whereby it, it, it is at its fullest and its most raging. It is a threat to the people who dwelt on the banks to be flooded. So that even crossing over it in boats is a problem. And then so God says, this is not the best time, humanly speaking, to be hoping that you are on one side of Jordan trying to get to the other side. So then why did God place the Israelites on the bank of the Jordan, looking at the other side, in this season? Why does God tend to do his wonders when there's no other route? Because he wants to show his people their utter helplessness to save themselves by their own efforts, and, to, and then to show them that he's a miracle-working God who will intervene in history to save his people and keep his promises and showcase his faithfulness to them. So there was no way out for the people unless God intervened, and he did. He's the one who can control and overcome nature and the raging might of the river and the forces of, uh, forces of nature. You also note the order of the crossing. When we read in the passage, who enters the river first? The priests enter the river first. They're the special representatives of of God. And what do they carry? They carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol, which is the reality of God's presence in the midst of Israel. And so God himself enters into the river ahead of the people, whereby the rivers part, and then his people cross. So God goes before them and he enables them to cross because he himself leads the way. 
And just so that you don't forget what a miracle this is, in verse 18 of chapter 4, it says, when the priests came up from the midst of the Jordan and their souls were on dry ground, what happened? The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. It is the end of the miracle. It's the end of, uh, of, of that wonder. And it's a return to normality. As before, things just return back to what it used to be. But God had intervened in, in, in the meantime. And so these are memorials forever to show that these memorials were specific and they were few in number. He said you had to make this a forever memorial because these things won't happen all the time. They commemorate specific miraculous interventions in history where God enters history to save his people. And he does not engage in these interventions regularly by his choice, not because he cannot, but by his choice. But he does them specifically in situations where his people are helpless to save themselves from their enemies and in his faithfulness he intervenes for them. Because it's important for faith, you know, for faith to come in to the situation and say, God says, look at what I've done in this in the past. Look at the 12 stones. This is a memorial forever so that you remember that I who saved you in the past, who went before you in the raging river and enabled you to cross over onto dry land onto the other side, you have to remember I was faithful to you, I will be faithful to you. So be faithful to me. Believe that no situation in the present can take you out of my reach. I will keep you, I will preserve you if you keep your faith, your hope, and your trust in me. So keep looking back to the 12 stones. Ask yourself, what, what does it mean? What does it tell you about me? Reflect on it, meditate on it regularly. Now, Commodore says that Yahweh's standard method of retaining his people's faithfulness is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness and teaching of those particular acts in which he had already demonstrated his care for his own. Because otherwise, you wouldn't need faith. You know, there's a lot of churches today that says, if you have faith, God will intervene for you. That is the opposite of faith. Faith is trusting that God has your best. in his view, because he already has intervened. That is trust, that is faith. If your faith in God is so that he can keep intervening, that is not the way God acts, because then faith would be kind of useless. It would just be response, like call and response. You don't need faith for that. And we had to remember that in this very same region, you know, hundreds of years later, a man called John the Baptist came to prepare the people for the coming of the kingdom of God. And then he would announce that a new Joshua, Jesus, was coming to save his people from the darkness of sin and rescue them and enable them to enter into the land of new life. And this Jesus was God. He was also a worker of miracles. You know, one of the most famous things his disciples say about Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 27. It says, the men marvel, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? He's the one who has power over the waters. He entered into the fight against sin and death. And as the book of Hebrews says, he went before us as our forerunner, as our captain, as our leader. He won the victory. He crossed 
the river of death. He resurrected into new life so this people can follow him into new life on the other side. And he did many miracles and he did lots of healing, but his intervention to save us from sin and death is what is commemorated in the memorials that he has instituted and given to the church, which is the baptism of the believer in the waters and the bread and wine, the communion that we partake of every Sunday. What do these stones mean? It means that we belong to a God who has worked miracles in our past because he's faithful and he has seen us over the river and he will not abandon us and he will not condemn us and he will see us through all the days of our life into eternity. It's a, it's a revelation of the faithfulness and the, the enduring mercies of God. Then secondly, you ask the question when you look at these memories, what does it tell us about ourselves. We said the 12 stones represent the tribe of Israel. So he told the people who crossed that you belong to a community that was formed and that was named by God. They had an identity. They were an Israelite. They are part of the people of God. So these remembrance symbols show that you belong to God and you belong to the people of God. And in the New Testament, you can see the same thing. First Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 13 talks about baptism. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We have an identity as Christians, but we also have an identity as belonging to the one body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, even though this is a negative way of putting it, 11 verse 20, it says it talks about the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So it says that when you, when you come together, that is where the Lord's Supper is to be partook of. Again, it's the Lord's Supper. That's, you have an identity of belonging to the Lord, but there's also the identity of belonging to the people of God, and that's important. So there's an aspect of who, who are you when you look at the memorials. And then there's the aspect of, of ongoing commitment. In, in chapter four, again, verse 12 to 13 of Joshua, it says the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. See, it was the, it was the end of their old chapter. It was the end of their old life. It was the beginning of a new life. But it didn't mean it was the end of their commitment to God. In fact, it was the beginning of a new commitment to God. It didn't mean that their battles or their trials were over, but that life was to continue, that the wars were still to be fought. Now the next task before the children of Israel was to follow the Lord's leading in fighting their battles against Jericho, against, against the pagans of Canaan. And so the 12 stones reminded them that God was faithful to them, but also that they were to be faithful and committed to him in their new life that he had brought them into. God said, you have to conquer the nations of Canaan. So they were prepared. As they came through the river onto the other side, they were ready for battle. That's why in verse 24 it says, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That beginning today, 
when you look at these memorials, you are to fear the Lord your God forever. In the, in the very act of the memorial, there's the aspect of obedience that they instituted the memorial. But they were to continue in that obedience. They were to continue in that commitment. You know, one of the memorials that we do not sometimes think of as a memorial, but it absolutely is, is the word of God. It is a milestone. It's a marker of God's faithfulness and revealing himself miraculously unto his people by giving us the very words of salvation. It happened one time in history and it's done. And so when the law was given to the nation of Israel, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 9, let's read from verse 6. It says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as friendless between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It makes explicit the ongoing commitment and dedication that is needed to follow God. By, mem- by taking the memorial that God had given and then memorializing it in their own hearts and in their homes. It was not just to be stored in the Ark of the Covenant, but rather they were to take what it said and apply it. You know, John's Gospel ends in chapter 20 It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Commitment. Forever. When you look at baptism, you do it once. But what is the commitment that we have? Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 to 6 says, says, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life, so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. So when you undergo the waters of baptism, you are not only commemorating the faithfulness of God in the past, but you are making a commitment, an enduring commitment that you will walk in the newness of life. When you take the Lord's Supper, again, in a negative sense, it's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 37, who are therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You have to maintain a sanctity in your own lives, in your communal lives. That is your commitment when you partake of the Lord's table. So the memorials not only point us towards God and what he has done for us in the past, but it points us towards the commitments that we need to make, that we have already made and need to follow through when we reflect on them or when we partake of them. You know, the children of Israel, one of the sad and funny things, that you know, it's sad and funny at the same time, is, is when they had the manna, given to them by God. They complained. You know what they complained about? In Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 to 6, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You see, what they remembered, what did they remember? 
They remember the fish, the cucumber, the, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And they remember the fact that it was free. They conveniently forgot that they were not paid because they were slaves. This happens to us, right? Right? A lot of people go through high school saying that, okay, this is the worst thing in my life. I just want to get out. And then 20 years later, it's all nostalgia. <laughs> high school was the best time of our life. <laughs> when we forget that God saved you from sin, from a really hopeless situation, and that it cost him, it cost God in Jesus Christ his life to save you from that slavery of sin and bring you out of that. When you forget that, then you look back and say, well, that time was not that bad. There's an appeal to sin, to falling back into your old ways. So that's why the Lord says you remember and you be fearful or you fear the Lord forevermore because this is a forever memorial. So it tells us something about God. It tells us something about ourselves. And then lastly, it tells us that we have to tell others about what the memorials mean. So first off, you know, in verse 24 it says that the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. The very fact that the memorial exists, the fact that the people of God participate in it or, or, or renew their um, memory of it on an ongoing basis means that other people will observe it and they themselves will get to know about God. You know, maybe the Red Sea was a famous sea at that time, probably. It is, it is that the Red Sea was a very famous sea. Everyone knew of the Red Sea. But the River Jordan was not that famous. You know who put the River Jordan on the map? God did. Why is the River Jordan famous? Because of God. If you go today to the River Jordan, there's no river. It just, it's just like a patch of water, like a stream. But people go there, why? Because of God. So they have a, God's memorials have an external testimony that tells the ungodly about God's power and his saving character. But specifically here, Joshua is, and God is very interested in the fact of children. So in verse 6 to 7 it says that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark. Verse 21 and 22. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. It is a sign that the memorial, the remembrance, is now part of your heritage as a family. It's a part of your identity. It's a part of your legacy as a family and as individuals. And since it's a core part of your identity, it is something to pass on to future generations. So when you look about, uh, talk about the, uh, the, of the law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, again we see the same thing. Chapter 6, verse 20 and 21 of Deuteronomy says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Then when you partake of the Passover, 
and, and partake of the various feasts that God instituted. An example is in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. He's talking about the feast of unleavened bread. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So it's, it's a part of your heritage. And if it's a part of your heritage, it's a part of your inheritance, you could say. It's something that you pass on to your children. What do you pass on? What are the meaning of these stones? And if you look in the New Testament, you can see further examples of that. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 15 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know the famous verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, everyone remembers the first part. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But there's a second part. It says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If we know about God, and if we know what he has done for us, and if we value that as important, then we will be eager to pass it on to our children. And you notice here that it is not just explicit instruction, but rather the inquisitiveness of children drawn by their attention to the ongoing testimony and character of their parents, and specifically their devotion to the remembrance of God through the memorials that he has instituted, that is what drives the conversation. Because children are eager to ask questions, to discover more about themselves, their family, the world that they live in. And sometimes that's annoying. Right? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Are we there yet? They have a natural inquisitiveness. But, but it's a great way for children to learn about important things. And, and here it is encouraged as a means to educate them about the things of God. You know, uh, one preacher puts it as like, you know, maybe they put up the stones in Gilgal and then they put like a big fence around it, called it like Gilgal National Park. And, and so every year the father would say, you know, as, like, as a part of our family's uh, practices or, or traditions, we would go to Gilgal National Park every year. And eventually the kid will be like, uh, what do these stones mean? Why do we do it every year? And then the father would say, it means that you and I, our family would not be here, would not be where we are today, but for the grace of God. He's a faithful promise-keeping God. And these stones point to that. You see, children pick up on peculiar things that stand out, that go against the grain of daily life and their thinking. Children don't ask about everything. My child has never asked me, what do I do for a living? It doesn't stand out to him. He knows that I go and I come back, or in my case, I don't go. (laughs) But, But it doesn't stand out. It's not peculiar enough. Now, imagine if I made a practice of, you know, ironing my socks and and, and everything that I wore and and polishing my shoe every day and then going to work. I guarantee you, your child will ask you, why do you do that? Because it's peculiar. It sticks in their memory. And so the significance that you give to something 
the priority that you give to something and the peculiarness of what it is drives children's attention to it. And then they ask about it. So when we are in, in the gathering and we partake of the bread and of the cup, every child will eventually ask, why do you do that? Why can't I partake of it? Or why was that person dunked underwater today? And why were you all clapping? Why do you have to go to church every Sunday? Why can't I go to my friend's house or, or go to the park or go running with my dog like everyone else does? Why do we have to sing and read the Bible before we go to sleep every night? All of these questions come naturally when they discover that there's something peculiar in a good way about mom and dad and their devotion to these things. And when that question comes, the Bible says, you can tell them about the God who established and stands behind these memorials. You know, John Calvin says, although the stones themselves cannot speak, yet the monument or the memorial furnished the parents with materials for speaking and for making the kindness of God known to their children. The memorials do not speak, but you have a voice. And the memorials give you the opportunity to use your voice to educate your children about God. And you see here, it's given to the father as a primary responsibility. You know, uh, I was listening to uh, Al Mohler preach about it. He said, it's specifically given to the father because God knows mothers will do it anyway, but the father would rather sit outside on the porch and play ball or something. But, but it's, that's, I mean, all joking aside. What, what, what it's trying to say is that there's the accountability of the father as the head of the home in establishing the character of the family as one who is devoted to remembering God in their daily lives and specifically through the practices of that family in remembering the memorials of God. You know, we have fallen prey to the lies of the world that somehow by educating children about God, about the word of God, somehow we are taking away their freedom of choice. It is not. We, are not. we cannot save our children. But we cannot willingly or by omission deny them the character and the privilege that comes from being born in a Christian home because that is the mean, one of the means of grace in God's plan of salvation. You know, one of the best passages, in my opinion, in Romans chapter 3 is, is in Romans chapter 3, when after Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, when Paul says the Jews are as bad as the rest of the world, then he asks a hypothetical question. Then what advantage does the Jew have? He says every which way they have an advantage because to them belong the word of God. The opportunity to be born and brought up in a home that has a Christian character due to the grace of God, is a privilege that even the Jews had and they did not use it, was Paul's point. They have every advantage that you can think of because to them belongs the oracles of God. And so if your children do not ask you these questions, you need to question yourselves, what do our lives point out to them? 
as important and peculiar and significant. And when they ask those questions, you don't have to make up the answers. That's the beauty of it. God gives us the answers. He, he specifically says what you are to tell them. He's not interested in vague and, and you know, like uh, postmodern types of answers. Well, to some people, the bread symbolizes this, but to others, they take it as meaning this. No, God is not interested in that. God says, I will tell you, this is what it means. This is my body that was broken for you. This is the blood that was shed as part of the new covenant. He gives you the answers. For the things that are important, God gives us the certainty of his word so that you and I don't have to make up the answers. And that is what we call as theology. Right? Some people will say that, oh, I'm not a theology, theologian, I just follow Jesus. But, but this is what theology is all about. You understand what the Bible says about the important things. And you remember it so that you can pass it on to someone else. And specifically in this case, you pass it on to your children. Live a life so that your children will ask the right questions. And then know the word so that you can give them the right answers. You know, after recounting God's faithfulness to Israel in history in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua says in verse 14 to 15, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, beyond the Jordan that you have crossed, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell today. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, I look back at the 12 stones. I realize God brought me over. So therefore, the character of my home is going to be this. Now you choose what you want to do. And you know what happened to that generation? It says Joshua chapter 2 Verse 10, after Joshua dies, this is what is, not Joshua, Judges chapter two, verse 10, after Joshua dies, it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What was the choice that they made? Joshua gave them the choice. A generation arose who did not know the Lord or remember the work. That is the beginning of the downfall of Israel. Their surrender to sin and their rebellion against God. They are forgotten and so became unfaithful. They did not go to Gilgal to see the 12 stones, to remember God. They were not taught the law. They didn't see the word inscribed on the doorposts on their houses. The failure of a generation to memorialize God resulted in a heritage that was lost and then a generation came after them that did not know or remember that God had parted the Red Sea, that he had parted the Jordan, that he had given them the law. What will the generation to come after us say about God? And in so saying, what does that say about us? See, God has not left us without witness. He has not left us without testimony to himself. 
He has given us his memorials, these milestones, these remembrances, the word, baptism, the bread and the cup, so that by looking back through them at his faithfulness in saving us, we can be obedient and committed to him. And in so doing, we can pass on a legacy to our children when they ask us, what do these stones mean? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for the fact that you have given it to us. You have, um, you have uh, oh Lord, counted us worthy of the privilege of holding your very own revelation in our hands. We pray, O oh Lord, that we take it to our hearts and our minds and apply it as you call for all, each of the memorials that you have instituted in our lives, O oh Lord. Pray that as we, as we remember you through these symbols, through these uh, markers that you have instituted, we do not forget the great works of wonder that you have done for us in the past, that we, that we stay committed and we go boldly into the land beyond the river, committed to fighting for you and living a life that is holy. And in so doing, a lot, we also establish a legacy in our homes and in this church so that our children are not left without witness, our testimony to the greatness of our God and the majesty of our Savior, our Lord, and our, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray a lot that, that your grace and your spirit will embolden us and guide us and give us every opportunity and strength to both remember you and also to recommit to you and to pass on that uh, testimony to all those around us, specifically those who belong to us a lot. So we ask a lot for your favor as we step out into the world this week, and we pray that you guide us and guide us. In the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.